Welcome to On the Mathematical Frontline, a special series of the PLUS podcast. My name is Rachel Thomas. Over the last two years, we've done a lot of reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic and the role mathematics has played in understanding the disease and informing how we've all responded. The Mathematical Frontline podcast is about the mathematicians who are grappling with the unprecedented challenge of studying a live pandemic unfolding in front of their very eyes. In this podcast series, we interview our colleagues in the Juniper Modelling Consortium, whose research and insights feed into the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Group, otherwise known as SPIM, and the now familiar SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, both of whom advise the UK government on the scientific aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. podcast, we're really pleased to talk to Ed Hill, a member of Juniper from the University of Warwick. Ed's also a part of the Zeeman Institute for Systems Biology and Infectious Disease Epidemiology Research Group, which he pronounces SPIDER. Ed is what you'd normally call an early career researcher, though the amount and kind of work that these early career researchers have done as part of Juniper probably contains several careers worth of experience already. Ed became interested in epidemiology during his undergraduate degree in maths and also chose this topic for his PhD. He worked on modeling the spread of types of influenza, for example, bird flu, and this involved using real world data and trying to understand the effect of interventions, exactly the kind of things that are of huge importance during the current COVID-19 pandemic. During his PhD, particularly with some work on bird flu in Bangladesh, Ed got his first exposure of working with international collaborations and policymakers, including the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. This kind of experience is something that's been so valuable in the response to COVID-19. Talking to my colleague, Marianne Freiberger, Ed picks up his story from when he started his postdoctoral research. My first postdoc position, I was working with uh, Matt Keeling and looking at constructing models for simulating seasonal influenza in England and evaluating cost effectiveness of different vaccination interventions. And so the outputs of this were used in conjunction with independent modelling done by what was known then as Public Health England, now the UK Health Security Agency, to advise on future kind of seasonal flu vaccination policy. And Again, through this regular interactions with the Department of Health and Social Care to ensure our work was meeting their needs and reports were presented in a way of immediate use to policymakers. So I had had this like ongoing interaction um, in the policy arena. And then, and then after that, that's then we then entered the kind of our current pandemic period. Yes, so you were a natural candidate then to become involved with the modeling of COVID and with SPIM. And for those listeners who don't know, Matt Keeling, who you mentioned earlier, is actually one of the principal investigators of the Juniper Consortium. Now, you've been involved full time with the pandemic modeling response since May 2020. Can you tell us a bit about the kind of work you've been doing there? 
Sure. Uh, so one of the areas of work back in kind of the summer and late 2020, so this is like pre, uh, pre-vaccination, uh, was we were looking at quantifying risks in close contact settings, so such as workplaces and universities, as there were potential transmission hotspots for infection. And within this, we were interested to capture, I guess, variation in demographic attributes and, I guess, in the individual nature of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that we had available at the time, such as contact tracing and social distancing. And so across this, we applied um, basically network models. So we had layers of contacts in different settings, such as um, the work or study setting, social setting and households. And as much as possible, we took a data-driven approach to uh, kind of parameterize these different contact structures and relative risk of transmission across contacts in the different settings. And so we may use a lot of pre-existing contact survey data to do this. And a couple of specific examples of what we looked at in workplaces, for looking at the impacts of, say, proportion of workforce working from home and introducing COVID secure measures that might cap your team size or looking to reduce the transmission risk per contact. And within universities and higher education settings, um, just kind of identifying the importance of high adherence to test, trace and isolate measures throughout the academic term. And through this, we had like work closely with universities and the Department for Education to then help translate our analysis into kind of helpful policy guidance. Yes, and we wrote about this higher education work on PLUS and it was really fascinating how you managed to bring these entirely new ideas such as testing whole student cohorts or getting them to socially distance within the halls of residence, for example, how you brought that into the modeling. Recently, you've also been interested in another aspect, which is about bringing more understanding of people's behavior into the epidemiological modeling. I guess I have an ongoing interest in epibehavioral modeling where this individual level behavior could influence population level disease dynamics and the, but the state of the outbreak at the population level can also influence our behavior and uh, perspective also matters potential differences in what is deemed the best course of action from the overall population perspective versus an individual perspective can you give us an example of this interaction between people's behavior and the development of an epidemic sure so this could relate to I guess adopting a or uptake of a particular intervention, which could lead to, yes, like suppressing, curbing the size of the outbreak. But then equally, if there's, I guess, strong initial uptake and then that causes the outbreak to enter into decline, then perhaps that means the uptake of the intervention, those who have not yet adopted it might then decide, oh, things are in decline, so actually I won't take up the intervention myself. But there might still then be enough susceptibility in the population, which then leads to kind of the outbreak perhaps ticking up again. So, yeah, so there might be responding to kind of the current outbreak situation, which might impact whether you take the intervention or not. And, and this is something that you're trying to understand how to take account of in modeling. So I think there's a call for having integrated models that try to study these like feedbacks between the different like population and the individual level level and the kind of interactive behavioral elements and response to public health measures 
And another part of this is having the data pipelines as well to try and draw in the different data, data flows and streams from different research domains uh, into a form that is then kind of amenable to be used in modeling. Mm-hmm. What kind of different data streams would they be? So as well on the kind of the epidemiological side where we've got information about um, kind of reported kind of reported cases and the more severe outcomes in hospitalizations and mortality. Then you've got information regarding perhaps like contact patterns. So you've got like the COMIC survey that has like a weekly report reporting using a panel of participants, like the number of contacts they're making over time. And then we have this data, this like weekly snapshot or data for now a number of weeks over the last two years of how the contact patterns have been potentially altering over time. And then other information regarding, I guess, people's kind of intentions on whether they would adopt a particular intervention where it available, for example. Mm. So does this involve then you collaborating with, for example, behavioral scientists, psychologists, economists? Is that part of the approach? Definitely. And again, over the last couple of years, I guess we've accumulated kind of an unprecedented amount of data that obviously didn't exist before. So it is then collectively kind of working in an interdisciplinary manner. It's like then trying to use this data in in the most positive way to learn from what, what's occurred and then apply those lessons for the future. But for you as an epidemiologist, what was the most striking experience working on the pandemic? Yeah, and I think there's like three things I would like to highlight into this. And the the first is just marveling at the the accomplishment, the scientific accomplishments that we've had over the last couple of years. And so this includes the successful development of these highly effective vaccines using multiple different technology platforms and the establishment of running of surveillance studies such as like the ONS infection survey and REACT, which has been immense. He's been like valuable, consistent data sources, giving us information about kind of infection prevalence in the population. Uh, a second item is then regarding kind of operationally, it's the role of like, the SPIM secretariat. The SPIM secretariat is a group of civil servants that manage the interface between the epidemiologists and government, right? So they act as a vital bridge between the scientific research and the policymakers, ensuring there's this coherent bi-directional communication between the two. And so they very much like kind of synthesize the work that's produced and like kind of translate what's there. And they can, from the researcher's side, to present to policy. And then they can also take what's being discussed by policymakers and ensure what is being asked by them is then a problem that the modeling can actually be used to investigate. And then the third is the spirit of collaboration. And again, particularly across the research disciplines. And so a personal example here, 
So I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to be involved in a higher education group that arose from a series of workshops run by the Isaac Newton Institute. And this resulted in a collaborative piece of work on uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission uh, in the UK higher education settings. And we, so we used multiple approaches to assess the extent of university outbreaks, how much these outbreaks may have led to spillover into the community and expected effects of control measures. And of course, then being a member of the Juniper Consortium too, and it's been tre tremendous to see contributions from Juniper that have been made and that we continue to make collectively. Um, and then the last question I had was like, how has working on COVID impacted you personally? I'd say it's brought to the fore the, the importance of, of teamwork and the strength of having like supportive colleagues and also very much consideration of our like mental well-being as well, which is like really, really important. And I think finally, just within the public health emergencies, is that there is not kind of the answer to, to this. It's, but what we can seek to do is basically to basically give our best to, to try and lessen, lessen the suffering. Mm. Um, and if you could, could give yourself some advice as you were at the beginning of the pandemic with what you know now, what would you say? Oh, that's an excellent question. I guess part of it's like definitely like pacing, pacing yourself. Um, but at the very outset, it's kind of very much all in. And, but obviously it's um, unfortunately yeah, not a short, it's not like a, a short-term event, this pandemic. And therefore consideration of, as I say, ourselves and our kind of team members are our own kind of health and well-being. So yeah, pacing, pacing ourselves. We're nearly at the end of this episode of On the Mathematical Frontline, a special series from the PLUS podcast. But before we go, we'd like to mention another piece of work Ed did during his PhD, which really took our fancy. Rather than just investigating the spread of infectious diseases, he also looked at whether mood states such as depression, whether they might spread. And the research suggested that depression isn't contagious, but a good mood is. We thought this was a nice cheery note to leave you on. We're really grateful to Ed Hill for taking the time to talk to us. And we'd also like to stress the amazing role the Isaac Newton Institute has played in the COVID response. For example, through the workshops on higher education and many other aspects of the pandemic that Ed mentioned had been so important in his work. You can find out more about the various strands of COVID work that Ed mentioned, as well as the work of other members of Juniper and other workshops run by the INI on plus.maths.org. Thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. Mm -hmm.